it was roughly three years ago um, that we held our last service in the basement of Beachwood Baptist Church and then moved to this location here on Bardstown Road and celebrated Easter together. Um, I believe it was April 8th was our first service here in this building. Actually, it was probably the 6th because we, were, we had Good Friday here. Um, if you were a part of, of GFC in those days, then you might remember that our last Sunday at Beachwood, the weather was much like it has been recently, um, and we forsook our Sunday school hour and instead bailed water out of the basement. Um, I don't know if you remember that. It was kind of a fitting close to our time at, at Beachwood, and I can remember saying, this is you know the last time that we'll have to deal with water. And then we came in and the toilet in the kids' area had overflowed. I thought, we're on the second floor. Water is not going to phase us anymore. But the toilet had overflowed into our foyer area. So it was kind of a just an amusing thing that happened then. Um, it hasn't happened since. Praise God. <laughs> but that um, that rainy Sunday morning, maybe you remember, we, we, we paused and just tried to ask the question, why are we leaving? Why, why are we moving out of the basement? What's the, the purpose and why are we going to Bardstown Road? And we looked at John 12. And in John 12 we said we were coming to this place to die. We were coming here to lay down our lives um, for the glory of God and for the spread of the gospel. Because Jesus says there in John 12, unless a seed dies, it cannot bear fruit. But if it dies, then it will bear much fruit. And so we as a church often say that that the three purposes of the church are worship to God, fellowship with one another, and outreach to the world. And as we looked at our church and the health of where we were at, being in the basement really hindered this whole outreach to the world thing. We did great with missions, but as far as reaching out into our local community, the, the physical space hindered that. And so we came to this location to try to be healthier as a church and to be reaching out um, into the neighborhood that God has placed us in. So we left with that hope and we're continuing to seek to grow in all these areas of worship and of fellowship and of outreach to fulfill what God has called us to do as a church. And so each year about this time, as we kind of reflect and remember that, um, we try to remember that move and try to remember sort of why we are here. Um, to remind ourselves not just of why we are here, but the, the purpose of the church in general. Why has God given the world the church? Why doesn't he just save us and take us to heaven? But why are we here gathered as this group? And not only that in general, but also as Grace Fellowship Church. Why do we exist? And why do we exist here in the Bonaire neighborhood, on Bardstown Road, in this location? Why are we here? You may have no memories of the early days of Grace Fellowship Church. You have no clue what I'm talking about. Um, and some of you have memories that go further back than, than I can go, back to Linden and, and to the White House and before it was Grace Fellowship Church, but was the, the Filipino Fellowship. And I don't even go back that far to understand those things. But what I do know is that we're all here now. And we're all part of Grace Fellowship Church now. And so we need to be clear on who we are and what we are called to do. So as Philippians 1.27 says, we can be striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. That's, that's the hope of this morning, is that we would be united in our purpose and our vision for who we are as a church. So we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, and see how Paul's description of his personal ministry is also the, a description of the ministry that, that we have as, as a church. So my hope is that we would, we would kind of clarify that purpose, that we would see our individual responsibilities, and that we would just be stirred up to, to action to do what God has called us to do as individuals and as a church. 
So Colossians 1, 24 through 29, we're jumping right in the middle of this, but just to remind you, if you weren't in Sunday school, this is a letter written by Paul to the church in, in Colossae. Um, Paul had never probably been to this church, but the gospel had gone there through a man named Epaphras that maybe came to know about the gospel through Paul while he was in a city called Ephesus. And so now Paul is writing this letter for various reasons. He's encouraged by their faith, but he's concerned about some false teaching. And, and so he's addressing these things. And in this section, he's speaking specifically about his own particular ministry to the world and to the Colossian believers in general. So that's what Paul's talking about um, here. So let's look at Colossians chapter 1, and I'll start reading in verse 24. Paul writes, and he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Again, we see Paul's particular ministry, but we're going to see also ours as well. Um, as we read this passage, there's a key concept, there's a key word that's in here and that's in this book and is all throughout Paul's letters, and it's it's the word mystery. And I want to use that word to, to state kind of what the main idea of this passage would be. I want to say it like this, and this is where we'll, we'll what we'll think on this morning, that Paul is communicating this. The mystery has been made known, so let's make the mystery known. I think that's what Paul is communicating here. The mystery has been made known, so let's make the mystery known. So if that's the main idea, then we have to answer two questions. Number one, what in the world is the mystery? And number two, how are we supposed to make it known? So those are the two questions that we're going to think about and try to answer this morning as we think about the purpose of the church and of our church. So first, what is the mystery that is now made known? What is the mystery that is now made known? For Paul, this word mystery, uh, it, it doesn't refer to a secret that still remains unknown. Rather, it refers to something that previously was unknown and now has been revealed, now is known. So Andrea and I just had a new little baby. And often if people saw Andrea and she was pregnant, they would say, or they would find out she was pregnant, they would ask, is it a boy or is it a girl? To which we would say, we don't know. <laughs> it's a mystery. We didn't know. We didn't find out. And until Gwen was born, we had no idea. And then suddenly the mystery was revealed. That's the kind of mystery that Paul is talking about here. Something that was previously unknown but now is known. Paul's an apostle. He's a messenger. He's been charged with taking the message that God has given him to everyone that, that he can. And this message is a message that formerly was, was unknown. It was unknown even to Paul. But now this message is clear, and the message he says throughout the, the first chapter of Colossians is sounding forth, it's spreading all throughout the whole world, and it's bearing fruit everywhere that it goes. He says what it is in verse 25, 
of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages. So the word of God is the mystery. It's also something else, though, because verse 27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is the mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the word of God isn't probably referring to the Bible, but but is referring to the gospel, the good news. And the good news is about who? It's about Christ. And not only is it about Christ, it's about Christ in you. Because as we said last week, the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done doesn't mean anything unless we are united to him. So the good news is not just Christ, but Christ in you. Though he does say it is Christ in, in 2 2. Chapter 2, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Just Christ. The mystery is Christ. And the mystery centers on Jesus, and the fact that we can know forgiveness and reconciliation with God and with others through faith in Him. That's the mystery that Paul is revealing. And, and it wasn't known. No one knew about this until the coming of Jesus. And in fact, it, it's not even see, seen clearly until after the resurrection of Jesus and even the sending of the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. So for generations, the Old Testament saints, they understood something about a Messiah. But they did not have this full picture of Christ, of who Jesus was and what he was going to do to accomplish salvation. Even the disciples continued to miss this mystery, didn't they? We watch as Jesus is so clear that he must suffer. And they understood this whole conquering king Messiah, but the idea of a suffering servant who would die to provide redemption, that didn't make any sense to them. It was, it was hidden from them until you see in Acts 2 that Paul gets it. I mean, I'm sorry, Peter gets it and he starts preaching the gospel, the good news of Christ, clearly. Paul himself didn't understand the mystery of Christ, did he? Paul, Paul was, was blind to the gospel. He was killing Christians and persecuting them until Jesus knocks him off his horse and then makes him physically blind so that he can finally see and understand the mystery of Christ. So the mystery made known to Paul and to the Colossians and to all true believers up until this present day is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. He says it this way in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him, through Jesus, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Jesus has made peace. That's, that's the mystery, that this, this wonderful mystery that we have come to know that God has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, that He's calling all people to repent and to believe in Him, to turn from sin and to trust in Christ and to know forgiveness and reconciliation. Many of you know this mystery. It's not a mystery to you anymore. You understand who Jesus is and, and what He has accomplished. But some of you may not know the mystery. Some of you, it's, you, it's been hidden from you. You don't understand that Jesus is, is God's one and only way of salvation and that God calls us to turn from sin, to turn in repentance and to trust in Christ alone for salvation, to know that He has paid the penalty for our sin on the cross and He has risen from the dead to give us new life and to give us the hope of eternal life with Him. 
If that's something you don't know, if you've never understood the mystery and maybe God's opening your eyes to see it even now, I'd love to talk to you. Joel and I would love to talk to you about what this mystery is. But it's a wonderful mystery that, that we who are in Christ know. And it's, and it's a glorious message that God has given to us. But, but it's not something that He's given to us that we're supposed to, to hoard. But rather, it's a message that we are to tell others. We are to reveal this mystery. So the first question was, what is the mystery that has now been made known? The second question is, how are we called to make this mystery known? How are we supposed to tell others about this mystery? Let's state the obvious answer first. We make the mystery known, number one, through proclamation. Through proclaiming. Through through telling others what this message is. That's what Paul says here in verse um, 28. Him, Jesus, and what's the mystery? The mystery is Jesus. The mystery is Christ. Him, we proclaim. We are telling others. We are proclaiming. I mentioned Andrew and I didn't know um, that our baby was a girl until she was born. We also didn't know what her name was. That was a mystery to everyone, uh, including us. So we, did, we didn't know uh, what her name would be. We hadn't decided it yet. We always take too long to decide that. Um, but, uh, but once we did, once we knew that we had another little girl, and once we knew what her name was, we, we let everyone know. We didn't keep it a mystery, right? He didn't call up and say, well, is it a boy or a girl? Oh, we're not telling anymore. Because you know, it, it was a mystery, but it was revealed to us. And that's, that's the same thing with this mystery of, of Christ in us. That, that Christ is the way of reconciliation and forgiveness. And, and this is a proclamation that we are to, to tell. That is the, the mission of the church. The, to proclaim Christ is another way of saying what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 28, which is what? Make disciples. Making disciples involves both evangelism and discipleship. These are two things that we talk about in the church. Evangelism has to do with telling those who are apart from Jesus the good news that they can be reconciled to him through faith and repentance. And discipleship, we often think of it in terms of those who have come to faith in Christ now need to grow and become more like Jesus and understand how to follow him. But in fact, they are one and the same thing. We need to be careful that we don't separate evangelism out and think that we can create converts and not disciples. The Bible doesn't make a distinction between someone who has faith in Christ and someone who is following Christ. They are one and the same. And the goal of the church is to make disciples. That's all we are to do. And so we proclaim Christ to everyone. And we proclaim repentance and faith to those apart from Christ and to those who are in Christ. That is the life that we live, is a life of faith and repentance always. And so we are calling people to follow Christ, to, to trust in Him. And when, there are, when they come to know Christ, then we are call, calling them to follow Christ and continue to know more who, about who He is and to continue this life of repentance and faith. Discipleship is what we are about. Proclaiming Christ is the goal of this church. Now, this, this text gives us, I think, two broad ways that we are to proclaim Christ. So, so how do we make the mystery known? Through proclamation. And let me give you two ways that we proclaim who Christ is and what the gospel is. They are simply, and I'll, we'll expand these in a moment, but in deed and in word. In deed and in word. And in fact, this is how God always reveals mysteries and reveals truth. It's how he has revealed himself to us. God, we see in Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens 
the works of God, the things that He's made, are doing what? Are declaring. They, they are saying something. that The heavens are declaring the glory of God, and the stars above are proclaiming His handiwork. So, the works of God, Psalm 19, 1-6 tells us, are telling us who God is. Everything that we see around us, His mighty works are telling us who He is. And then, in Psalm 19, it shifts in verse 7. And in verse 7, it says, it starts to talk about the law. That the law, the revealed Word of God, the, the spoken, proclaimed words of God that we have recorded in Scripture, are also telling us who God is. So it's deed and Word. This is how Jesus proclaims who He is, isn't it? He comes into the world, and, and He heals and he casts out demons, and he raises the dead, and he performs miracles, and he preaches repentance and faith in him. It's in deed and in word, and as a church, that is what we are called to do. As followers of Jesus, we proclaim Christ in deed and in word. We proclaim him by the things that we do and by the truths that we say. We proclaim him by the works of our hands and by the words of our mouth. So think about indeed first, and we're going to connect it to verses 24 through um, through 27. But more specifically, let's say this, we proclaim Christ indeed by joyfully suffering for the sake of others. The way that we proclaim Christ indeed in what we do is by joyfully suffering for the sake of others. Notice that in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. We should notice this. Let me just point out a couple things. Paul is rejoicing. He is happy about his suffering. Now he's not happy about the suffering, but he's happy about what the suffering is accomplishing. What's the suffering for? It is for your sake. It's for people. And it leads all the way to this last statement of verse 25. It was All these things were done for, for Paul to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So what Paul is saying is he's saying, I rejoice in my suffer. I joyfully suffer for the sake of others because that service to others is making the word of God known. It is revealing the mystery of Christ. Paul is, is not rejoicing in suffering for suffering's sake. That would be ridiculous. Nobody rejoices in suffering just because, well, people do, but that's, we say that's kind of strange, right? So, but Paul is saying, I rejoice in suffering because that suffering is accomplishing something. And it's accomplishing this, that the Word of God is going forth. The Word of God is becoming known. All of Paul's suffering was for the purpose of making Christ known, of revealing the mystery of union with Christ. So his beatings, his imprisonments, him being stoned, him writing letters, him taking time to do these things and suffering for others, all of that was not pointless, it was purposeful. Every deed of Paul was meant, every suffering that he had was meant to to seek out the discipleship of this, to make known who Christ was. He says here that it's filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. That's a tough phrase, isn't it? What does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that anything was lacking in Christ's afflictions as far as what is necessary for our salvation. Paul is clear on that, that that Jesus drank every drop of the wrath of God, that Jesus fully satisfied all the requirements of the justice of God and and of um, 
of the law. Jesus fulfilled everything that was necessary. Paul says that he has done it. He's made peace through the blood of his cross. Period. Paul is not atoning for our sins through his suffering. So what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? I think there's one sense in which there's, there's a suffering that comes with, through following Christ that's, that's predicted. So there's a fulfillment of sorts that the church must suffer because Jesus suffered. He himself says that if the, the master suffered, then so will you. And so we're, we're filling that up in a sense. But, but I also think there's something deeper that we can find in a couple parallel passages. 1 Corinthians 16, 17 through 18, Paul's closing out his letter. He says this, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, I think is how you say it, because they have made up for your absence. So they are coming to Paul and they are making up for the fact that, that the Corinthians could not come and visit Paul. Making up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to some to such people. And then in Philippians 2.30, Paul talks about Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus came to Paul. And this is what Paul says. He says of Epaphroditus, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking. Same word, complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now the Philippians loved Paul fully. What was lacking is that the Philippians could not come and see Paul. So in both of these instances, what's lacking? Physical presence. The, the picture of, of people being with Paul is what's lacking. So what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Nothing as regards to our salvation. But I think what Paul's point is, is that Christ is not physically present anymore, serving and, and suffering with us. And so Paul says, I will be present with you, and I will serve, and I will suffer on your behalf. He is filling up what is lacking, and all that is lacking is the physical presence of Jesus. I think this gives us a key into what it looks like to suffer for the sake of others, and to serve others indeed. We are, in a sense, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We are present. We are modeling what Christ has done on our behalf. How strange it would look if we come to people and talk about how much God loved them and laid down his life for them, and we were unwilling to lay down our lives for them. How strange that is if we start telling people about a God who was willing to send his son to earth, and we are unwilling to go across the street to help someone in need. But but rather what, what... what this does by filling up when we when we serve others indeed that that suffering helps them see what Christ has done now there's suffering that comes into everyone's life that's inevitable and, and there is a way by walking through that in faith that we show forth the truth of the gospel but there's also suffering that we actually bring into our lives that we invite that we purposely seek out and we seek it out not because we love suffering but as Paul says for the sake of others. To serve others. Now for Paul it was imprisonment and it was beatings and it was very difficult physical things. But it was also the fact that, I mean, you look at how many letters he wrote. I mean, Paul invested time and energy and thought in communicating. We don't even have all of Paul's letters. But Paul served the church in all of these ways. And so as a church, we are indeed in what we do to show forth who Christ is and the truth of the gospel. It can be seen in so many ways. And I, I'm reticent to give examples because I don't want you to think that these are the only categories. 
but let me just give you a few to help you think about it. We can serve others indeed in the way that we use our money, by the way, the way that we give to those who are in need. We as a church came to Bardstown Road. We had a benevolence fund. And we didn't really use it all the time. We did. There were opportunities. But suddenly we came here and we had to figure out what are we going to do with all the needs that are showing up on our doorstep. We had to find out how we could serve others well with financial gifts. And as a church, we, we've, we've tried to do that. We haven't done it perfectly, but we're seeking to do it the best that we can. And in doing that, our purpose is not just to alleviate physical suffering, but it is to serve others, to make sacrifices with our own finances so that we can show the love of Christ in the things that we do. We do that as we give money to missions, to see the spread of the gospel. We make sacrifices of things that we might want to buy so that the gospel can go forth in areas that it hasn't yet. Maybe we do it not just with our money, but with our possessions. We've talked often of giving rides to people and, and, and offering a, a ride to them to, to church. Maybe you use your home to, to bless others. You invite the youth of the church to come, and you feed them food, and you offer hospitality. That's serving others in the name of Christ. You are taking time out of your schedule. You're taking money. You're taking your home, your possessions, and you're giving them to show the youth of this church the love of Christ. And they see it in the way that you serve. It could be our church. Times where we've had opportunity to open this place up that God has blessed us with and to serve others. There's so many things that sometimes happen that that we don't even know about. Maybe you didn't know, but there was a a family and, and someone died um, they, they lived at Economy Inn and her brother passed away and they needed a place to, to have a memorial service. And they had it here. They did it for free here. And that was the love of Christ shown by this church because we pay the rent. We didn't charge them a dime. And they used our, our, our cups and our silverware and our plates because we want to show the love of Christ and have opportunity to tell them more about who He is. It's the way we use our time, the way you prepare food for potluck or for Easter or or for my family, because we had a baby. <laughs> I mean, that, that's showing the love of Christ. You are, you are doing that to me. And it's not just outreach. It's, it's, it's amongst one another, isn't it? That we are showing forth who Jesus is to each other. I need to be reminded of the love of Christ by the way that you love me. By the way that people come and watch my kids so that my wife and I can spend together. To spend time together. You, you do it in sacrificing your time to go to small group. I mean... Sometimes you don't want to, I don't want to go to small group on Wednesday night. I'll be totally honest. I'd rather sit at home. But, but I take time, and when I go, I'm, I'm blessed to be there. The, the joy of, of spending time and learning, it's, it's time in discipleship relationships. We, we give of these things. We serve others to show the truth of the gospel. The, the list is endless. The list is endless, but every act of service done in the name of Christ for the sake of others is a means of showing forth the gospel indeed. And we do it with joy, as Paul says here. Now, is that the only way that we are called to proclaim the gospel? No. We, we don't simply proclaim Christ indeed, but we proclaim him in word. And Paul says specifically here, we proclaim Christ in word by admonishing and teaching everyone. That's right there in verse 28. Him, Jesus, the mystery, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Instead of warning, your translation may have admonishing. 
I think that might be more helpful. I, not not to say that the word doesn't warn people, but I think admonishing captures the idea better. That's how it is in actually in chapter three, verse sixteen. It says that we read earlier, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another." in all wisdom, etc. So this word has to do with instructing one another, instructing each other how we are to live as followers of Christ. It carries this idea of, of actually counseling one another, of, of telling people about the avoidance of sin or encouraging people to stop living in ways that are opposed to God and His standards. It's, it's encouraging one another to walk in a way that pleases God, to put off the deeds of the flesh and to put on the deeds of the Spirit. But then Paul, what's the second word? Teaches. And I think this teaching has more to do with, with, um, with doctrine, with our understanding of, of who God is, with the content of what we believe. Now, here's the deal, though. Those things don't, I mean, they bleed together, right? Who, what we believe about who God is directly influences the way that we are called to live. And so the, we don't want to make the distinction too strong. But the point is that we take the word of God, the truth of the gospel, and specifically the Bible, and use it to to minister to each other and to tell each other the truth of the gospel. So this word ministry is the task of the whole church. Everyone is to proclaim Christ in word, warning, admonishing everyone, and teaching everyone. Specifically, this was Paul's ministry. And he had a unique ministry. But there is a sense in which the whole church is supposed to do it. Certainly there's a unique responsibility for Joel and I as elders to teach. And for those that have been gifted with the ability to teach, that we are to proclaim the word clearly in word. But it is also the task of of everyone. It's the task of the, the elders, Ephesians says, to train up the body for the work of the ministry. That Joel and I are not only to teach, but we are to help everyone to know how to teach and admonish and encourage in some way. We are all to be ministers of the word in some way, shape, or form. We're to know how to use the scriptures to admonish and to warn and to teach others. That's a task of everyone in this church. So how how are we doing with that? It, it, It has to do with outreach. It has to do with having the opportunity maybe in your workplace to give praise to God, to in word, to say, give thanks to God for something good that has happened in your workplace. Or even to clearly tell someone the truth of the gospel during your day at work. To to spend time talking with them, even to do a Bible study with them. The ministry of the word has to do even with simple things like sending a text or a letter or an email or a note to someone that contains the scriptures, maybe making a phone call to encourage someone with the word. This is something that we are all called to do, not just the pastor. As a church, there are avenues where there's opportunity for word proclamation to happen. It certainly happens on Sunday morning and in Sunday school. But it happens on Sunday evenings too. And not just when someone stands up to teach, but as we sit around the table and we speak about the way that God has spoken to us through his word, we encourage one another with that. It should happen in small groups. The purpose of small groups is that we would gather around the Word and we would encourage and admonish and teach one another. Not just the leader of the small group, but everyone in the small group. That's why small groups sit in circles. Because everyone is encouraging one another. We're working together to understand the truth of the Gospel. It should happen in discipleship relationships. It should happen in groups of of two people meeting together around the Word. Groups of three people meeting around the Word to encourage one another, to hold each other accountable, to pray for one another. This is the hope of our church. We don't have a ton of programs, and I pray that we never do have a ton of programs. But what we want, what Joel and I desire as, as, as elders, is that we would meet, we would gather around the Word on Sunday mornings. 
And then in Sunday evenings, we would be together and we would pray with one another in a more informal setting. But then throughout the week, we'd be gathering in, in these small groups, these, these groups of eight, ten, twelve people, where we are encouraging one another, where we're, we're thinking about what the sermon was about, or what the scriptures have to say. And we're, we're encouraging and admonishing and warning everyone. Everyone is a part of that. And then something that I know Joel and I both would love to see more of and that, that we need to emphasize more is that those small groups get even smaller. That there's groups of two meeting throughout the week. That there's groups of three. Maybe it's every other week. Maybe it's once a month. Whatever it might be. Maybe it is every week. But you're holding each other accountable. And that we, we are ministering the word to each other. We know how to read the scriptures together. We, we know how to teach and to train each other. It's happening in homes as, as moms and dads are teaching and encouraging their children. The, the ministry of the word is happening all over the place. We are proclaiming Christ in word in all of these different avenues. I think when we came here to Bardstown Road, this, this push for outreach to our community after about a year became very strong because there were just so many opportunities. And then as, as a pastor, I think we sort, of, we sort of pulled back a little bit, and now we've sort of readjusted, and we're figuring out what that looks like in our community. How are we reaching, we reaching out? What, what does that exactly look like? And as with worship to God, fellowship with others, and outreach to the world, these things are, are in flux, and there's seasons sometimes where one is emphasized more than another. But I just feel compelled at this season in the life of our church, as we are at, we've added this component of reaching out, that we need to remember that we are to fellowship with one another. Not just in potlucks, not just on Sunday night, but that we would be gathering in small groups and smaller groups and ministering the word to each other. I know some of you are excited about that thought. You know, some of you think, I just I need someone that I can meet with regularly that would help me to understand the scriptures more. Or, or you say, I have such a strong desire to help someone know the scriptures more. Maybe someone who's in a, a young Christian. Man, I would love to find one or two people to to pair you up with, to, to put in a group of three, that you would be meeting regularly to be in the Word. I think that's something that we have desired strongly and we've spoken of strongly, but it has not fully materialized. And so I want to encourage us, let's, let's make that happen. If there's any application that I can give you, if that's something that lights a fire in your heart, I want to do that, then, then talk to myself, talk to Joel. Joel's the king of the one-to-one discipleship. He knows how to do that, and I'm learning from him constantly. But let's not just talk about that anymore, right? Let, let's start doing it. If you're not in a small group, we've got three opportunities. Well, should we have four? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights, every other Friday with the youth. I consider that a small group geared around young adults. Every other Friday night. If you're not involved in one of those, and you can be, I encourage you to be in a small group, to be ministering the Word in, in word and in deed. So many practical opportunities when we're in close community with one another to show the love of Christ in that way. So we make the mystery known through proclamation. We proclaim the mystery of Christ in deed by joyfully suffering for the sake of others. And we proclaim the the gospel, the good news, the mystery of Christ in word by admonishing and teaching one another. Everyone in the church doing all of these things. Let me give you a second way. Just I'm actually just going to pretty much say it, and that'll be about it. But we do it through proclamation and through hard work with God's strength. That's, that's the verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, God's energy that He powerfully works in me. We do it with hard work through God's strength. It's going to be hard work. It's, it's not easy to do these things. And we must struggle and fight and toil to do it. And we do it 
in the strength that God provides. So just keep that tension in mind. We, we've said that the purpose of our church, we said this in the past, last year I think at this time, we said Grace Fellowship Church exists to help people engage with God, with one another, and in ministry, all for the glory of God and in His power. That was that worship with God, fellowship with others, outreach to the world, and ministry to one another too. But let's say it this way. Grace Fellowship Church exists to present everyone complete in Christ. That's another way of saying make disciples. There's a thousand ways we could say this. We exist to make people complete in Christ. And we do it by leading them to engage with God, to engage with each other, and to engage in ministry, both outreach to the world, but also within our own body, ministering to each other. And we do it for the glory of God and in the power and the strength that He provides in us. So what will success look like? What's it going to look like if we actually pull this off? Well, we're never going to do it fully, perfectly, until Christ returns. But for our church, it's going to look like deed and word proclamation on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings. That's just happening all over the place. It's happening from the pulpit, but it's happening before church starts and after church is over and on Sunday evenings around the tables. That we are just, we're loving each other, we're serving each other, and we're also speaking the word to each other. It's going to look like people gathering in small groups to serve one another and to gather around the Word. It's going to look like people pairing up or getting in groups of three, meeting throughout the week, meeting at different times to hold each other accountable, to speak the truth in love to one another, to memorize Scripture together. It's going to look like outreach happening, whether it's at Economy Inn or with refugees and immigrants or or maybe some other way. That's what it's going to look. We're going to go out and we're going to serve people in love and we're going to tell them the truth of the Gospel. It's going to look like us sending missionaries and supporting missionaries. And we're all in this together. This task of proclaiming Christ in word and in deed. We're all in this together. This is something that we are all called to do as Grace Fellowship Church. And success is going to look like this, it says. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The fruit of our labor is people. People who are mature in Christ. It's disciples. The task Jesus left us with was to make disciples. And God doesn't care about programs or buildings or budgets or events. That might be part of the work that we are called to do. We've got to have programs and we've got to have buildings and we've got to have budgets and we've got to have events to a certain extent. We need those things. But only as they are serving to present people complete in Christ. Everything that we do as a church should be pushing to make disciples, to make people complete in Christ. Let me just close with this, this presenting idea. We want to present everyone mature in Christ. Who are we presenting everyone to? What what does that mean? You're making a presentation, you're presenting it to someone. And I found Ephesians 5 helpful. Listen to this, familiar words. He gives instructions about husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church. So Jesus is going to present the church. We're called to present the church. Jesus is going to present the church to who? To himself, it says. Jesus is going to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without Blemish. Remember, what's the context? Instruction about husbands and wives. Who is the church? The church is the bride of Christ. And Jesus is sanctifying us and making us holy and pure so that he can present us to himself. 
as a bride that is pure and spotless so that we can be fully and finally united to Him as in a marriage, that we would be united to Christ for all eternity. And so our job as a church in presenting everyone mature in Christ is this same idea of presenting the bride of Christ pure and spotless. We are presenting ourselves and others to Jesus as a bride. That's what we, we, we want to be pure and holy. And so the way we, we do that is we work hard to, 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 to be pure and holy, and we do it in the strength that He provides. And we do it until Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That that's, we, we do it till then. We do it till we're presented to Christ. We keep ourselves pure and holy, and we strive to be pure and holy. We strive to be mature in Christ. We strive to be disciples until He comes. So until then, we proclaim the mystery of Christ. We proclaim the mystery which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. We do it, we do it indeed through joyfully suffering for the sake of others, and we do it in word by admonishing and teaching one another every day. And we do it all together. We do it all together, and we strain every nerve, and we struggle, and we work as hard as we can in the strength that God provides. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the church. Thank you for the love that you've given us for one another, the love you've given us for Christ, the love you've given us for those apart from Christ. Lord, help us to be always proclaiming the word to one another and to the world. Let us do it by joyfully sacrificing indeed and also by knowing your word. And even as you say in Ephesians 5, that we would wash one another with the Word, that it would have a cleansing effect. God, we want to be a pure, spotless bride for you. We want to present ourselves to you holy and pure without blemish. Lord, we're in this together. If I get cleaned up, but I don't help my brother or my sisters stay pure and holy, we are not a pure bride. So we want to work together, God. But thank you that ultimately you are the one that cleanses us. That ultimately, God, you, you see us not because of our deeds, but you see us because of the work of Christ. Would you have cleansed us from every spot and every wrinkle. We are pure and holy before you because of Jesus. And we thank you for Christ. We would have no hope apart from him and union with him. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.